who's ready for a little bit of good news? I am ready for a little bit of good news. Today on the podcast, I talk with my friend Eric Kerr, who is the CEO and founder of Lifetrack. And Eric and his team are attempting to solve some really challenging problems, problems of addiction, problems of recidivism for people in the criminal justice system, problems of people transitioning from deployment abroad to returning back to civilian life. Eric and his team are attempting to solve some of these problems through use of quickly emerging wearable technology. I am so excited about the work that he and his team are doing, and I can't wait to share this interview with you. If you are interested in learning more about Eric and his team, um, you can email Eric at e at lifetrack.com or check them out online at lifetrack.com. And again, that's T-R-A-Q. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So is your, is your current title CEO of Lifetrack? Is that how you're presenting yourself in public at least? Yeah. And broadly speaking, what does Lifetrack do? Is it more than the Oring stuff or? What does Lifetrack do? Fundamentally, what we're trying to do is we're trying to improve the quality of human life by building technology that makes personal data actionable for the individual. So not just for the healthcare provider, although that's important, but our ultimate goal is so that the individual can use their own data and healthcare data, biometric data, behavioral data, eating patterns, sleeping patterns, heart rate variability to really self-manage and become independent. I love that because I, I feel like we have access to all of this data now, or at least access to the ability to collect all of this data about our own bodies and our own rhythms. But there are very few ways to interpret that or use it in meaningful ways. So, you know, the, the ability of making our own data accessible to us and meaningful to us as humans seems extraordinarily important and kind of like the anti-Facebook, like... Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because it's something that we've always done, but this is new information and new data that people all of a sudden have, and they don't really know what to do with it. But if we stopped and just kind of slowed down and said, what historically have we been able to do with good data? And how have we used that data to improve lives and outcomes? If you look at just diabetes, as an example or even mental health. I have a son who's type 1 diabetic. He's 18 now. He was diagnosed uh, when he was 16. And now he, you know, takes his blood sugar every day. He's got a monitor thing on his arm that tells him when his blood sugar is high or low. And that's all data. And he knows how to self-regulate. Whereas 50 years ago, we didn't have that. And people were often managing from a crisis state, right? Or if you even look at how how we managed mental health, 
even in the 1950s, it was electroshock therapy. It was literally lobotomies, which is why I was bringing up lobotomy because it was on the top of my mind when we were talking earlier. But the change is the inquiry, right? So, so if we fundamentally ask, what do we have access to now in terms of data that we didn't have before? And what can we do with that data to improve outcomes? And so then it gets down to what outcomes are you trying to improve? Like for fitness, you know, the baseline is if you've never worked out before, you're sitting on the couch and you're going up and down 10 stairs, it's going to get your heart rate going. Anything is an improvement in that condition, right? But then how do we optimize for somebody like yourself who's really strong, a good athlete? So how do we optimize with a change in age, a change in community, a change in nutrition? These are all things that are fundamentally very important to consider. And so the way that we take it from a life track standpoint is we say, we are currently in, a, in a, an environment and in a society where we have a spiking mental health crisis. Why do we have that? I think there are a lot of assumptions. There are some things that we can correlate to certain outcomes. But really, the question is, why is it happening? We don't, I don't know exactly. Yeah, unless we really go in and, and try to answer a very specific question. So what we were trying to find out with our study with the Aura Ring and, and addiction relapse is, can we specifically use the Aura Ring as a piece of technology to predict that relapse is coming? Right. So just to back up a tiny bit, because my mother listens to my podcast, I'm pretty sure she doesn't know what an aura ring is. Mom, it's a little ring that you put on your finger that tracks all of this information about your body. And I'm sure Eric, you have a much more nuanced explanation of that. But yeah, well, it, it tracks one thing that their claim to fame, which is, you know, really, it's not new information. But if we all kind of fundamentally thought about how important sleep is, we would go, yeah, sleep's important. But it, it tracks sleep and it tracks more specifically, it tracks your autonomic nervous system, which has to do with your heart rate, heart rate variability, basically questioning whether you're in a fight or flight state or a rest and digest state. And so if you're constantly in a fight or flight state, then you're going to have really low heart rate variability, which means that you're constantly in an anxiety state. And if you have low heart rate variability, you're resting, you're chilled out, things are good. So when you have, when you're in a fight or flight state, you have to ask, like, why am I in this state? So it gives you the data to, to begin the inquiry. I was just going to say one of the things that, that I know through my work is that, you know, sometimes we as humans are actually quite slow or it's, it's quite difficult for us to be able to observe our own inner states and kind of assess them correctly. And so the tools that you're exploring or the Aura Ring in particular is an, an objective external way to give us data about our own, our own situation, our own body, our own mind in a moment, and then think about what to do based on how we are. And so this, this project that you've been working on that I think is just fantastically exciting is looking at that kind of biometric data or physiological data as predictor of addiction relapse. 
Yeah. And that's that's a really good way of stating it, Sherry. And I'm not a geek. My, I've got a chief science officer that's a geek, and I've got you know a lot of people at Aura that are geeks, so I'm just kind of coming on board to it. But the reason I started down this path is you, you know, you and I met probably three, three years ago, three, maybe four years ago. And so I had a, a situation where, you know, I've had a lot of people in my life who suffered from addiction, suicide, people going to jail, like people that are really close to me. My sister is raising her, uh, has just adopted her two grandchildren because their mom is gone. Like she's just nowhere to be found because she um, suffered from addiction. But there was a time when my dad and I and my sister, who is a 30-year registered nurse, ICU, ICU certified, surgically certified, just kind of seen everything. We were playing cards and he was 89 at the time. And we we're, I think we were playing rummy or war or something like that. And she started playing a game with my dad, asking him to change cards to the other hand and then doing all these weird things. And so we were just kind of playing along with it. And then like right out of the blue, she said, dad, I'm calling 911 because you're having a stroke. And so she was able to essentially predict, right, that stroke was happening and it was going to get worse. And he was likely going to die unless we intervened at the time. Where I had no idea what was happening. And more importantly, and to your point, he had no idea what was happening, right? And so that started me on an inquiry with experts saying, can we use, because obviously there are things that are happening with the nervous system and with the brain that are, that are manifesting physically, right, through our physical actions. But those things started firing off way before they started manifesting, maybe several days before even he started having a stroke. The value is in its predictive quality, right? And so we want to look forward to subtle changes in your body that can't be detected by your senses alone. And so this can be good forewarning of impending problems, future protocols, nutrition plans, and stuff, so forth like that. And it doesn't always have to be such a crisis state. Like I'm going for the big wins. We're going for the big, hairy problems that we haven't been able to really make a lot of traction on. Yeah, which I'm saying like, oh, this will be easy. Because it's so obvious, but it's such a nightmare because you've got so many businesses that are built around the current problem that they don't, they just don't want to move, right? Uh, it was like the opioid crisis, like opioid, like addiction to opioids. That's not happening. Right. That's not a problem. Yeah, that's not a problem, says the pharmaceutical company, says the doctors who are prescribing, who are getting, you know, paid. So, so we're starting with very, very tiny studies and case studies and we're, You know, if you look at people who are suffering from addiction in prison, like if 10% of the people who who suffered from addiction in prison were treated for that addiction prior to them leaving and were supported throughout, that would save $4.8 billion a year. Wow. Just 10%. Yeah, just 10%. If you you move that up to 40%, it it would save $12.9 billion annually. So if you just say, what do I as a person and anybody listening, what do I as a person have access to? You know, you've got access to quite a bit. It doesn't have to be an aura ring. It can be, you know, a Fitbit. It can be, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of wearables out there right now. What you have to ask yourself and where probably people need some help is what should I track and what does it mean when I see this data and how do I correlate it to assessing current condition as a baseline and then making improvements so that I can see improvements in my own, in my own functional state. 
And I think the, the radical shift there is a move away from like the examples you gave earlier of the lobotomy or the crisis oriented diabetes management, where we as a, a, you know, as a health community, for example, don't intervene until this last possible moment. The ambulance doesn't get called until your dad is fully in a stroke. There's only this point of observation when it's absolutely clear that something is wrong versus these more subtle changes where we have then the ability to hey, first of all, prevent potentially bad things from happening because we can see when someone is beginning to be vulnerable to them. And number two, even better, move into like a health promotion kind of place where we're not necessarily even problem tracking as much as like promoting positive and helpful states. So knowing how to really understand the nuances of our bodies so we can optimize for health and well-being instead of only sniffing out places where we're, where we're vulnerable or where we're, uh, have some injury. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's all managing that crisis state. And when, you know, I take people, I live here in Utah, a lot of people come out to ski for the first time and I can teach them how to ski right? And I I can get them up and skiing pretty quickly. And the first thing I tell them is it's easy to go downhill. The thing that you want to be able to do is you want to be able to turn whenever you want to, and you want to be able to stop whenever you want to. And so you have to have those basic skill sets. And I think in health and in mental health and in addiction, it's all about that willpower, not necessarily willpower, but it's all about that ability to manage self when I want to and not getting like, by the time you're like 40 miles an hour off the main trail skiing and you're headed towards that tree, it's too late, right? All the skills had to come in before then. The bunny hill skills, Mm -hmm. which I need next time in Utah. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) what we do, right. So would you talk a little bit about the study that your team did? It's a pilot study. I know it's small scale, but I think it's really interesting. The study specifically about people who were participating in an what began as an inpatient treatment and then moves to an outpatient treatment for addiction. I think the the center that you partnered with is is it in Arizona? Yep. Yeah, the sanctuary. So fundamentally, addiction treatment and even the healthcare system, the correction system, they're all kind of fundamentally built the same way, is that it's highly transactional. So in, in recovery and in, in addiction, somebody would go to a detox center, right, and get them clean, right? So basically, drugs are out of your system. Now we're going to take you to a recovery center where you can learn or just we make sure that you're not falling off the bus. Those are fundamentally two totally separate organizations. They don't share uh, typically any kind of data. One may be a state-run facility and then another one may be a private facility. But in most cases, you're going in and you're getting clean and and the rate of relapse is about 90%. Most of these people who suffer from addiction will go through several treatment centers because clean is not healed, right? Clean is just chemicals out of your system. Yeah, chemicals are out of your system, but your brain is still driving for that hit, right? And when you go home, you've got all the brain trained responses when you go, when you see your buddy, when you smell something. And it's all based really fundamentally on our senses, where the amygdala will just drive and give you dopamine hits that will drive towards the addictive habit, right? So we know now, based on science, that dopamine, which is the pleasure, chemical is used by the brain to lead you to the addictive behavior, 
right? But it doesn't give you a dopamine hit when you do the addictive behavior. It's leading you along the way. So it takes you to, it takes the horse to water. It's the hope of the, that the addictive behavior will feel a certain way, not necessarily the addictive behavior itself. Yeah, exactly. So what we did was, you know, we, we talked with the sanctuary, which is a phenomenal treatment center, but they recognize kind of the gap in, in the system. We would have, let's say, 30, 40 people come through their 30-day program, and then they would ask maybe a week or two weeks after, how are things going? They had maybe a 1% reply to that email. Wow. So people aren't engaged enough. Yeah, totally not engaged. So when we started distributing the aura rings on day one, so so we worked together and we changed the model from a from a 30-day program to a 90-day program. So it changed the model from 30 days treatment in facility where you come in, we get you detoxed, we teach you nutrition programming, we teach you meditation, we help you reestablish community. We if you've got anything else going on, then we try to address those as well. But then we're going to follow you home too, and we're going to support you 60 days because most people will relapse when they relapse, they'll relapse in the first 60 days. So we said that's really our, our crisis window after they leave here. And so just having the aura ring where participants could see their steps as a basic measurement and tool increased the collaboration in the community with the participants themselves. So they were saying, how many did you get? I got this many. What was it? What was your sleep like last night? Right. It said mine sucked. Well, mine sucked, too. OK, well, we both you know, like our sleep sucks. So we've got that in common now. Right. We don't even have to use any emotion languages, but we're we're sharing something kind of significant about ourselves by sharing these numbers. Yeah, which wasn't happening before. And so then as we start to look at, uh, we start to discuss, all right, this is why your sleep is bad. Because initially they would say, well, it's telling me my sleep is bad and I already knew my sleep is bad. So this thing is, is terrible. Well, you have to reframe kind of the purpose of the data. And even treatment centers, I've heard, you know, some friends talk to treatment centers. They're like, well, by the time somebody it tells us that somebody's in relapse, it's too, too late. Well, that's true, right? By the time 911 is called because somebody's off the ditch and they're, they're in a rollover, the rollover has already happened. Well, that's, that's obvious data, right? But the question now we have to ask is what happened an hour or two before somebody rolled over off in the ditch? Maybe they were drinking, maybe they were sleepy, maybe whatever, right? There's a whole bunch of data that we need to find out. And historically, we know the dominoes had to be or arranged in a certain way before the rollover in the ditch. Yeah. And so now, just from the basic data, and my chief science officer, because I'll ask her, I'll say, well, what do we know? And she goes, we don't know anything until we've analyzed the data. But what we can fundamentally say about the data is level of participation has gone up. We know that half the people who leave the treatment center will go into relapse. But we're also surveying them. So they're not just wearing the ring. We're asking them very simple questions that they can uh, answer through their cell phone on a daily basis. How would you rate your sleep? How would you rate your cravings? Right. And just super like scale of one to 10. So now we can take that data and correlate it to the heart rate variability and the anxiety states and the sleeping pattern. And we can start to learn, okay, well, if it wasn't very good, are you sticking to your nutrition program? Are you doing your meditation? Right. All that stuff. So we have in the first couple of weeks, we've got 100% participation. So 
So if you take the before scenario where we would, they didn't even get them to answer an email. Only 1% would respond to the email. Yeah. Right. We've got everybody for the whole 30 days that they're in there responding to three or four surveys a day. And they're doing the same thing when they leave. At least half of them are following through all the way to the end. So look at all that data we have now, right? And look at the level of participation and engagement. Because if somebody knows that, okay, they're going to ask me tomorrow how I'm doing again, like that anticipation for tomorrow will increase compliance and self-control like by a lot. And then we begin to be able to pull together these predictive patterns, right? Where we can see, all right, your sleep was really poor. Your heart rate's highly variable. You haven't been eating very much. Spend three days since you did your meditation. Maybe it's time for a phone call or maybe there's, you need another level of care because the risk for some kind of relapse is increasing. Mm -hmm, Exactly. But you have that data at the time. It's kind of like just in time support, right? And if you look at kind of the main categories that we're usually looking at, we're looking at inflammation, digestive health, nutritional supplementation, controlling symptoms of withdrawal. You got hormone balancing, stress reduction, exercise, mindfulness, social connection, and sleep improvement. Those are kind of the main 10 pillars. And if you're kind of breaking those down and somebody's got a routine that you've set up for them that they're supposed to be complying to, it's very easy to start. It's not easy, but you can start to make correlations. That are highly individualized. Somebody's got kind of their own formula for this is what makes me me. Because if, if you look at, let's say that you and I were both suffering from the same addiction for the same amount of time, we're using the same amount of heroin or whatever the case is, and we go into the treatment center at the same time, should you and I get the same protocol, right, for hormone balancing, as an example? Probably not, Eric. You're, you're a man. <laughs> you're a 26-year-old female. Yeah, right? I'm 26, yeah. <laughs> I've been 26 for like 15 years. Yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> So yeah, we, I think we need different things though, to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's different. You have to personalize this for everybody. And that's what's so exciting about today is that there is no excuse not to do this. The data is there and it, it costs nothing. What, what takes the effort and what takes the work is for somebody to open up yourself to say, okay, I want to... Let's just say that, you know, anybody listening is like, well, I'm not, I'm not addicted to drugs. Okay. Well, do you have increased anxiety? Do your kids have anxiety? Do you have a loved one who has anxiety? How is your nutrition? Maybe you have a sugar addiction. Maybe you're not getting enough sleep, like four to five hours. Are you waking up at 2 a.m. every day, same time every day, and then checking your phone? But maybe you're just struggling with patients, with your children who are learning at home right now, or maybe, you know, it's that like likelihood that you're going to pour yourself that third drink or the likelihood you're going to eat that extra cookie. It doesn't even have to be this grand, hairy, diagnosable problem as much as like, Hey, I would like to be more patient with my children at the end of the day. Is there something that I can learn about my body and its fatigue level or its irritability level or heart rate variability that can help me realize, okay, Sherry, at 7 p.m., you're pretty tired, and so are your children, and so that's not the time to tackle the really big, hairy math problem or do something that's 
aggravating to all of you. That's going to lead to more distress in your family. Yeah, this really simple physiological data can help even with non-diagnostic problems. Yeah, absolutely. And if fundamentally it comes down to we want to reduce stress. And in order to reduce stress, what has to happen in the body? Well, the brain's function and ability to manage stress and anxiety has very much to do with what you put in your mouth and what's coming through your gut, because that feeds through the mitochondria, your brain, right? And if you're not giving it enough omega-3s and fats and you know healthy foods, but you're down in popcorn at nine o'clock or you're you know grabbing chips or you're getting a burger because it's quick and convenient. I mean, if you look at just as a quick note, and I don't want to rabbit hole into this, but if you look at, you know, diabetes too, as, as, you know, a condition it's on the rise. And a lot of that, many people point to the food industry for making really quick, unnutritious foods, right. Accessible and cheap enough to the children, right. And to the adults who, you know, generally we as a species become a lot busier cooking your own meals. Isn't really a thing anymore for most people. And so that's driving to the diabetes. So fundamentally, the point is nutrition, like nutrition has to do with it. And understanding, again, the, the particular interaction between our unique physiology and the foods available to us. So again, your body and my body being different, my body being different than my kids' bodies, and understanding that we need maybe different levels of protein at different times of the day and, and things like that. But I, you know, I think... I mean, I'm so grateful that you are tackling these big, hairy problems because obviously you're working in the addiction space, which is a space, ask any mental health professional and they will say, oh yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, we have, we are not well equipped to really support people in healing from all kinds of addiction, but especially addiction to alcohol and, and other kinds of substances. And we do our best but we're missing really important components of the story that we just can't access through talk therapy. And so I think the fact that you're using this technology to really focus on these parts of life that have caused so much suffering, obviously I'm a big fan. <laughs> um, and I think the other thing that uh, you know we need so much help in is the, the possibility of integrating this kind of information into suicide prevention. Because you know this data, but the suicide rate has gone up over 30% um, in the last 20 years. And I think with the story of the pandemic and the prolonged financial crisis, like it's just going to get worse. And so to be able to, for someone like me, who is in some of these stories with people to have this data that sort of says, hey, this person's at some elevated risk. This person is flagging some risk, risk signals. And there's this possibility for early intervention that's different than than we've ever had access to before. Yeah. And it's it's all right there. And it's really, you know, you don't have to get a new degree for this. You can use the data responsibly and take the information that you are already trained on and kind of wrap it around the data so that you can help people. And really what it's doing is it's just getting, it's asking more questions and getting data on a more consistent basis versus the consistent check-ins, right? I mean, let's just say that a, a patient who is suffering from potential suicide risk or addiction, like you can see maybe on their day-to-day -day sleeping patterns, like what's happening. Uh, you see like, all right, he's getting up at 2 a.m. and then not going back to sleep till 6. Right now, I know he's not getting enough sleep. So let's at least address that 
because when you don't get enough sleep and you get over anxious and, and you're over anxious anyways, right? You're going to tend to be more depressed, which is going to be a higher inclination to not being able to manage my stress and anxiety and have a bad outcome. But if you look at just kind of fundamentally what we're looking at here, like in, in any given year, nearly one in five U.S. adults age 18 or older suffer from mental illness. 12 times the number of post 9-11 veterans have died by suicide since 2006. 9% of students in 2019 have made a suicide attempt. So, you know, there's a crisis. You can blame, like we know social connectivity is a thing. We know that nutrition is a thing. You can very easily go to things and make some assumptions very quickly like, okay, social connect, we're all more connected, but are we connected in a meaningful way? But I, th I think the reality is that it's all of the things, right? I, you know, I think people write compelling arguments and say, oh, if we didn't have social media, we would ha we wouldn't have this mental health crisis. And I, it's all of the things. We are a complicated organism and every outcome has a multivariate risk factor. So yes, it's connection. Yes, it's nutrition. Yes, it's sleep. Yes, it's normalizing conversations about mental health and mental well-being. Yes, it's the way that we parent. It's stress rates in parents who are raising children. You know, it's all of these things that work together. Yeah. So I think what we do is we just slow down for a minute and we just pick one question that we try to answer. You know, if you're a therapist and just say, okay, how will improve sleep? And if I really took a look at that and just say, I'm going to help people sleep better. How does that change things, right? If they look at supplementation and make sure that they're supplementing, if I look at improving social interaction and meaningful social, social interaction, you know, we know for sure that face-to-face -face eye contact in real life has a real effect on our well-being, right? It changes our chemistry. You don't get that on social media, right? You get a lot of dopamine on social media and you do connect, but not in meaningful ways. It's more transaction versus deep. And I've lived long enough to know that real relationships take a long time to establish. You have to have real life experience, which is part of the reason why like, I've got some really good friends like yourself and some other people, but most of my really good friends I've come back around to are my friends from high school. Mm. There's lots of shared stories. Yeah, we grew up together. We interacted. We survived things together. We barely survived things together. So, and, and if you talked to when I was interviewing people on the uh, Healing Addiction Summit, I asked about social media and they say, is social media having a negative effect on the children increasing the suicide rate? Well, you can make a correlation that what, since we've had social media, the suicide rates have gone up, but they wouldn't answer yes or no. Because we need to look at it, like we need to analyze it. But we can use social media as a data point to see if things are happening in a predictive sense. And that's something that can be done. Well, I think this is phenomenal work, Eric. And we, we didn't even jump too much into the ways that you're using this. Or you alluded to some of the ways to use this to sort of try to minimize recidivism for people who are coming out of prison, really just by treating the problem that treating some of the problems that are correlated with criminal behavior that might land people to take another trip around the wheel. But yeah, I mean, another aspect to this that, that we haven't gone into, but is a very important aspect to it, in my opinion, that we're, we're testing and, and we're using is, you know, essentially we're, we're becoming the weight watchers for mental health. 
so that for every action that you take, you have a point system correlated to that. So for people who are coming out of addiction or treatment, we know that if they have a sequence of activities, nutrition, sleeping, exercise, social, that equate to 500 points, and each category has its own point system to equate to that 500 points, they know, okay, my activity goal, uh, point goal this month is 500 points. And so then we gamify it as well, which kind of engages the, the mind and gives them a, a, a benchmark to shoot for. It helps you know how well you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so we're going to, we're starting to design this for inmates in prison. And so they know that if they hit a certain point level in behavior or, you know, class attendance or whatever, then they can get tokens that they can exchange a commissary. Or if they're a father or a mother, they can use it to exchange for clothes and fulfill that role as a parent. But also the uh, parole board can use that same point system to see where they should have been versus where they are. And inquiry, if they aren't where they should have been, then what happened versus just, oh, how you doing? Are you going to do it again? They've got real data around it. Thanks so much for your time, Eric. And we'll put information about how to follow you and get information on LifeTrack. We'll put it in the show notes on zenfounder.com. Um, and then in the social media posts. So lots of amazing work and I'm really excited to see where it goes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.